Well, good morning, everyone. Is that, are you on yet? Yeah, we are. Good morning. Yep, so by way of introduction, my name is Mark, as most of you know by now. I'm married to Deb. We've got four grown-up-ish children and a couple of grandsons, and we're so thankful to God for enabling us to come and be a part of New Life Community Church at such a time as this, as we've become one family across multiple locations. Now, perhaps you're new to the church, or perhaps you're visiting, or you're listening to a recording, so you might want to know that we, in, in both our sites here in Fordingbridge and also in Wimborne, we're currently in the New Testament, and we're working our way through the book of Hebrews. And as we do that, today we're going to be looking at a couple of passages which at first glance might seem a little bit tricky. And if you've been a Christian any amount of time, I'm sure that you'll appreciate that not everything in the Bible is easy to get your head round. And if you're anything like me, perhaps there's a little bit of a temptation to kind of just skip over those passages. However, as Paul writes to Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And if what Paul writes is true, as I believe it is, then even in the most difficult passages of Scripture, there is wisdom, there is knowledge, there is truth that can equip us for what God has in mind for us as a people. Now, normally I would pray after I've read the, the Bible, but today I'm going, to, I'm going to pray beforehand. So if you've got a Bible, let's get ready by turning to Hebrews chapter 5. And whilst you're doing that, I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that this is life and truth to us. So Lord, we pray that you might give me the words to speak. And all of us, ears and hearts and minds to understand and apply what you want to say to your people at such a time as this. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So in Hebrews chapter 5, I'm going to read from verse 11 and then on into chapter 6. We have much to say about this, but it's hard to explain because you're slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death, and of faith in God, instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. It's impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance. Because to their loss, they're crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it's farmed, 
receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. But even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you've shown him as you've helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has, God, what has been promised. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. And because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. And God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it's possible, impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. And we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And whilst we've got our Bibles open, let's flick forward a little bit to chapter 10 and read verses 26 through 31 where it says, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we receive the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who's trampled the Son of God underfoot? who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, it's mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord would judge his people. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Okay, I mean, there's, there's no denying, is there, that there's some strong language in these passages. But by God's grace... And by his spirit, I want to lead us through why I believe he inspired the writer in such a way. So let's start by just considering who it is that the, the writer was originally writing to. As the saying goes, the clue's in the name. He's writing to the Hebrews. The first followers of Jesus were in the main Jewish. As the book of Acts tells us that over time, many Gentiles, that's non-Jewish people, became Christians until they were the overwhelming majority. But the first followers of Jesus were mainly Jews, who had come to believe that he was the Messiah that they had been promised. However, in the middle of the first century, the church was suffering some severe persecution. At the time this letter was written, some Christians had lost property, some had been publicly abused, some had been thrown in prison, 
and others had been killed for their faith. So for those Jewish Christians, perhaps you can understand the temptation to return to the way that things were before. Because Judaism was at least tolerated by the Romans as kind of like an authorised religion. Christians, however, they were seen as dangerous revolutionaries. So there must have been some immense pressure to renounce Jesus and return to the relative comfort and safety of the Jewish synagogue. However, this letter, which often reads more like a sermon, contains various warnings about doing that very thing. It's interesting, if you look at the history of the Jewish nation, that there does seem to be this tendency to hark back to the good old days. But their memory seems a little bit selective because those good old days weren't really that good. And we've recently come out of a series of sermons in Exodus. And even as Moses was about to lead the nation of Israel through the Red Sea, they complained to him and they basically said, we were better off in Egypt. And they effectively said the same thing in the desert of sin. If you want to check that out, read Exodus chapters 14 and 16. The point is this. The nation of Israel had a tendency to look at their past through rose-tinted spectacles. They complained that they were better off in Egypt and apparently forgetting that they'd been forced to work there as slaves. And in, in this book, in the book of Hebrews, the writer has already been reminding his listeners of the failures of that first generation in chapters 3 and 4. See, that generation had seen awesome miracles and plagues and seen how they'd been set apart from that, from Egypt. They were the Passover generation. They had literally, literally been passed over and their firstborn children rescued from death. <coughs> This was the generation that ought to have entered into the promised land. However, many of them turned away. They chose not to trust in God's promises. And in so doing, they rejected his purposes for them. Numbers chapters 13 and 14 tell of how an explorationist sent into the promised land. But of the 12 men that were sent, only Joshua and Caleb came back in faith. The other ten returned in fear and unbelief. And that caused the nation to wobble again and wonder if they were better off in Egypt. Eventually, however, the nation kind of feels sorry for that and they try and enter the promised land under their own strength. But they're defeated by the Amalekites and the Canaanites and they're prevented from entering at that point. So all of this serves as a kind of a backdrop, which I'm going to suggest that we keep in mind as we look at the way that our passage starts. Verse 11. We have much to say about this. What is the this that the writer has in mind? Well, he's just been talking about the priesthood of Melchizedek. And it's a theme that he's going to return to in chapter 7. So it's a bit like this, he's right in the middle of chapter 5, although of course the chapters and verse breaks are added way after, 
So they, they, the chapters and verses weren't there at the time. But he's, in, he's going this way, and all of a sudden, it's like he's heading in this direction, and then he, he kind of veers off. It's like he makes a detour. And it takes, this detour takes up the rest of chapter 5 and the whole of chapter 6. What's the writer doing here? Well, can you see something of the mercy of God? God's love for these Jewish Christians is so strong that he inspires the writer to make this detour in the hope that they won't turn away from Christ. Commenting on this passage, Fillmore, the author, suggests that the strength of the language he uses to get their attention is in some way a reflection of the strength of the love that God has for the precious people that he has saved. The writer is very keen to get their attention. He's very keen to see his readers or the listeners be brought to maturity in the faith, to move on from what he calls milk, which is for babies, onto solid food. In verses 11 through 14, he makes this deliberate comparison between those who no longer try to understand, or your translation might read something like have become hard of hearing. It makes a comparison between these guys and those who by constant use have trained themselves. In the Greek, it's a bit like the training you might do in a gym. Not that I go to a gym very often, but I understand the concept. <laughs> So what he's doing here is contrasting the lazy with the diligent. And it's a thing we'll pick up again shortly. In verses 1 to 3 of chapter 6, he lists what he calls elementary teachings, or what I've, I've heard being called the ABCs of faith. These elementary teachings or doctrines, and he calls them foundational. So if you're going to build something strong and secure and lasting... You're going to want firm foundations. So the writer lists six foundational doctrines. Repentance, faith, baptism, the laying on of hands, which is probably a reference to the receiving of the Holy Spirit, resurrection, judgment, foundations. And then in chapter 6, verse 4, comes the warning. There were those, it appears, who had tasted of God's goodness who had shared in the Holy Spirit, who had received his word and power, but yet had fallen away. They'd fallen away. In those words, can you see an echo of what happened to that first generation, who had fallen away, who had rejected God's promises, rejected his purposes, and disqualified themselves from entering into the promised land? See, the writer has already in chapters 3 and 4 quoted twice from Psalm 95. And it's like he's making an appeal. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. It's like the writer's appealing to his generation not to make the same mistake that the first generation had made. Because in the face of persecution... Some of them were being tempted to return to their Egypt, which was the synagogue. Now let's be very clear about this. This isn't like changing churches. 
these guys are apparently considering going back to the very people who had killed their Messiah and wanted to do the same thing to his church. It's likely that this is what the writer's alluding to when he writes, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. They rejected their Messiah and they were siding with the enemy against Jesus and his followers. And the writer picks this theme up again in chapter 10 where he talks of trampling the Son of God underfoot and insulting the Spirit of grace. In the parable that follows in verses 7 and 8, note that the same rain falls on the land that produces a good crop and the land that produces the thorns and the thistles. However, the land that produces the crop receives a blessing from God, but the land that produces thorns and thistles is in danger of being cursed. So there's no sugarcoating it. It's strong language that the writer's using here. However, and it's a really, really important however, it is clear that the writer does not expect any of the Jewish Christians, those who are following Christ, those who love Jesus, he does not expect them to lose their salvation. That's what I hear when I read in verse 9. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case. Because they have demonstrated their love for God and Jesus Christ by continuing to serve him and help his people. He urges them to continue to do so. To remain diligent to the very end with the assurance that they will inherit what God has promised because the nature of his purposes do not change. He made a promise to Abraham and then he swore an oath to keep that promise. God keeps his promise. The writer expects this hope to act like an anchor for the soul, holding firm and secure even in the fiercest storms of life like persecution. So that, that's kind of like an overview of what the passage would have meant for its original audience. But what would God want to say to us today out of this passage, in this season, at such a time as this? Well, before I move on to what I really believe God wants to say to us this morning, I just want to address the elephant in the room. Because... I think that there are those who read a passage like this and they ask the question, can I lose my salvation? And the answer that I would give, and I truly believe that the Bible teaches, is that if you are a Christian, then the answer is no. You cannot lose your salvation. And we've already talked about God keeping his promises. He made a promise to Abraham and he swore an oath to keep it. And there are all kinds of wonderful aspects of God's character. I don't know what you think of when you consider what God might be like, but one of the first things that pops into my head, and we've already touched on it this morning, but one of the first things about God that comes into my mind is that he is faithful. See, our eternal security in God rests 
on the faithfulness of God. I have in mind particularly what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, what I call the Magnus Magnuson verse. I'm sure of this, that he who began, if you don't know who Magnuson is, ask your parents. <laughs> I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, I've started, so I'll finish. Paul uses this kind of language regularly in his letters to the various churches. For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. You are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful, by whom you were called into fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So can you see Paul's logic here? It is God who called you into fellowship with his son. And because he's faithful, he will sustain you to the very end. And he says something similar to the church in Thessalonica. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Maybe there's some amongst us this morning that need to take real comfort in these verses. Stand on them. Rock promises from our God. Now, speaking pastorally for a moment, as someone who served in church leadership for several years, the question does arise about those who, and most of us can probably think of somebody, who looked like they were going on really well, and then they just seemed to fall away. What are we to think about these people? People that we probably loved a great deal. Well, let's come back to the faithfulness of God. If they're truly his, he will preserve them. If they come to their senses, like the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, if they come to their senses, he will welcome them with open arms. But ultimately, it's between them and God. So let me encourage you. Keep praying for them. If you know people like that, keep praying for them. I, I, I have them even in my own family. Keep praying for them. Keep showing them the love of God. Keep trusting God because he is good. He is faithful. But it would be wrong of me to gloss over what the Apostle John writes in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be become plain that they are all not of us. So it does seem possible for people to look like they're with us, to say the right things, to taste the good things of God, and yet not be born of God. So let's keep praying, praying that that is not true of these guys. Let's pray that if they made a commitment, that God will bring them to their senses and welcome them back with open arms.
And if you're worrying that these things that I've spoken to apply to you, can I suggest to you that the very fact that you are concerned about it suggests that this doesn't apply to you? Otherwise, you wouldn't be worried about it. The very fact that you're worried about it suggests that these verses are doing the very thing I believe the Holy Spirit wanted to happen, which is to encourage us not to become lazy, but to remain diligent right to the very end. Here's the Apostle Paul again, writing to the Philippians. Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so, somehow, attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all of this, or already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. Keep pressing on. That's what I think God is saying to us right now. Don't stop. Don't slow up. Don't get lazy. And let our diligence serve as evidence, but not a qualification that we are indeed God's children. Now, some of you will probably be aware that one of my heroes of the faith is John Piper. And I've lost count of how many times I've played the audiobook version of Don't Waste Your Life in my car. And one of the passages that impacted me most of all was also preached at the Passion One Day conference in the year 2000, in what's come to be known as seven minutes that moved a generation. Now, this, this had such an impact on me that I, I just feel the best thing would be to do is if I read a bit of the transcript to you. I'll tell you what a tragedy is. I'll read to you from Reader's Digest, February 1998, what a tragedy is. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago, when he was 59 and she was 51. And now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. The American dream. Come to the end of your life, your one and only life, and let the last great work before you, given an account to the Creator, be I collected shells. Now, I do like nice, tidy, three-point sermons. This isn't one of them. I really only have one point today. I feel that God is saying, 
This is not time to take your foot off the gas. This is time to put your feet to the floor. Let me remind you of the prophetic word that John brought to the elders in advance of our One Church weekend. These are John's words. I felt God saying to get ready to go and keep the throttle on from this weekend and going forward. Now, not everyone enjoyed the first lockdown of 2020, and perhaps, like me, some of you lost dear friends to COVID, especially in those early days. But I would be lying to you if I didn't say to you that I, I quite enjoyed spending more time with Deb and with my family. I remember talking to Deb, and we said that we were getting a glimpse of what our retirement might look like. Not that we're quite there yet. But what I hear in these words of the writers of the Hebrews and echoed in the prophetic word that the Spirit gave us through John is this. Don't slow up, Mark. Don't take your foot off the gas. Don't get lazy. Now, I really enjoyed the One Church weekend, but I hopefully learned at least one important lesson. My body is not as young as I think it is. So when invited to join the game of rounders, I jumped at the opportunity. Now Deb did try to warn me, to be fair, but in my head I'm still about 26. My body let me know very clearly the very next day that clearly I'm not 26 anymore and haven't been for about 26 years. <laughs> so perhaps physically like me, you don't have the energy that you once had. Can I encourage you? I think God understands that. But whatever your circumstances, whether you are young or whether you are not quite so young anymore, let us take encouragement from Paul, who writing to the Galatians says this, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. Now, I don't know what doing good might look for you. That could mean all manner of things. But whoever you are, whoever you are, as long as there is breath in your lungs and life in your body, God has plans and purposes for you. He would have taken you home otherwise. If you're here, if you're breathing, he still has plans and purposes for you. So the writer of the Hebrews encourages us to resist the temptations, to give up, to turn back, or take our feet off of the gas. And we all face temptations, but hear the encouragement of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you. That's not common to man. God is faithful. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation... He will also provide the way of escape, that you'll be able to endure it. So let's keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who starts and who finishes. And if you don't feel strong enough or able enough, let's reach out to him for the enabling power of his Holy Spirit, because in, in our weaknesses, he is strong. And before I close, I just want to bring... A few points of application. Would it be good to get the band up at this point? Yeah, I get, yeah, maybe get the band up. So a couple of points of application. Firstly, 
I said that I don't believe that if you are saved, then you can lose your salvation. But maybe there are those either here this morning or, or listening that know that they have not given their lives to Jesus. And they've not gone through this process of repentance that this passage speaks about. If that is you, can I encourage you, if you're here, come and speak to me or one of the elders. Well, that's Dale, I think, isn't it, today? Yeah. <laughs> we would love to talk to you and, it, and help you get closer to knowing God. If you're listening to a recording, please get in touch via the website. But for the rest of us, let us keep on keeping on in whatever capacity we are able to. Let's do everything that we can in the strength that God supplies to support our elders as they lead this church on in its vision to see many lives transformed by Jesus to the glory of his wonderful name. Let us keep on pressing on. And even if our bodies aren't able to run so well, let's keep running the spiritual race because the prize that awaits us at the finishing line is an eternity with the one who calls us. Jesus is rooting for you to finish well, so much so that he is interceding for you even. And as I'm speaking, it has only been a couple of days since our new King Charles III pledged to follow in the footsteps of his beloved mother and give his life in service throughout the remaining time that God gives him. Now there have been many wonderful tributes to our Queen, our late Queen, and all kinds of touching memes on social media. But there's one recurring refrain that has very much resonated with me. It's clear that the late Queen had a very real and a very deep faith in Almighty God through Jesus Christ. And so I'm very confident that the very next word she hears as she breathed her last in this life is, well done, good and faithful servant. And if we remain diligent to the end, I am confident that we too will hear those words. Amen.